0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences, to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. I'm Vince Diamante, and I have had very, very little sleep. Uh, I hope that you're doing a little better on that front than I am, Mike. Uh, but what about it?
1: Uh, I think actually I'm also running on uh, suboptimal energy because uh, I've gotten hit by some kind of bug. Hopefully not the uh, virus that has been making headlines recently. Um, it may just be a more conventional cold. But, yeah, I think we're both maybe a little bit uh low energy and maybe a little bit dizzy this episode, which I'm sure will make for a fascinating conversational dynamic.
0: Oh, it's not too bad. It's just, it's funny. I've got energy, but, oh, my muscles. Uh, You can put as much energy into those things as you want, but sometimes they just don't want to move. I guess this is courtesy of being on the wrong side of 40 as well, so.
1: Right. My, my, My deep... Sympathies on that front.
0: Uh, Thank you. Thank you. But uh, there's actually a lot of fun stuff to be excited about. And I kind of wanted to mention some of those things. Uh, I have actually acquired some really cool things recently. I decided to get uh, a very, very nice Sony home theater system. Yeah, they got this thing called the Sony HT-A9. Yeah, it's not catchy like a, a PlayStation or Xperia or whatever, but whatever. The HTA9 is their high end wireless sound system where you basically have a small box that connects to your TV and four relatively large satellites that you put on the corners of your room. And from that, it's actually able to synchronize with each other and create a 12 channel. At most immersive three sixty type sound very cool and it's pretty good. it sounds really good. All the reviews that I actually read about uh leading up to this suggest that, oh yeah, this thing is absolutely amazing so far, it has been really amazing, except for games <laughs> and this is kind of one thing I wanted to uh just talk about, because this really concerns a lot of us, uh, whether you're a game audio person or even just a regular game player. Um, I'm actually kind of wondering, what was the state of your game playing right around the early 2000s? Uh, What what were you playing games on at that time?
1: Right. So I was in-house at an indie game studio in Boston at that time. Uh, so, I'm, I, we had a dedicated... Uh, what was the the, the the sort of prevailing Nintendo console at that time? Would it have been the N64 or...
0: Uh, probably the
1: GameCube. Game, one of those two. We had a, a room that was just sort of dedicated for that. And uh, that had a pretty good sound system. Like, we had company games of Mario Kart and uh, uh, other stuff. And my... Owen's studio was um less set up for gaming uh it was you know it was a, it was a music studio but uh, i didn't have much going on there so i feel like i was either using the, the the company's room for gaming or i was crouched over my palm pilot which had no audio to speak of or very little and doing you know <laughs> tank games using using like a, a black and white screen
0: oh wow <laughs> Oh Palm Pilot. Uh oh, I'm, I'm I'm getting flashbacks to uh I actually had a trio at the time and then I quickly went to a Handspring. because Handspring was super interesting. Uh I, I really loved what they were doing and sort of furthering the Palm mission back in the middle 2000s. Um
1: You know recently there was a um there was a do- I know we're getting off subject a little bit, but there was a uh there is a documentary on Handspring uh, floating on YouTube. Uh, oh, wow, really? Yeah, I forgot the name of it, but I, I heard about it on uh, John Gruber's Apple podcast, and I think he interviewed the person who made the documentary, and, and uh, it sounds really awesome. And uh, speaking as a fellow trio owner, um, <laughs> I'm definitely going to be checking this out.
0: Yeah, that, that's really cool. Um, I mean, sort of audio related, Handspring was really interesting because they created that expansion slot on the top. Right. And you could put all sorts of things into that. Uh, one of the things that they actually made was an MP3 player, so you could oh. have your uh, PDA and your MP3 player be a single unit, uh, which was really cool at the time. I mean, th- this was the you know the mid two thousands and. Uh, Well, it kind of was leaning towards that Apple hegemony at that time, too. But, you know, there were a couple of other options, you know, the Creative Labs stuff, and Microsoft had some fun things, too, and and lots of cheap MP3 players at the time. I was really interested in PDAs, so, uh, yeah, I had an MP3 player for my handspring. It was really quite cool.
1: For some reason, I remember that that expansion slot was called the Springboard. Yes, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know why I remember that, because I've forgotten so much more useful information, but that lingers. You know, I also had a um, Sony Clea, which was their license uh, platform. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. I don't quite have a visual memory of it, but I remember you could had maybe a base and a screen, and you could kind of pivot the two, uh, like right. two parts on a swivel hinge of some kind. Uh, it was a really, really cool device. Uh, a lot of fun also kind of uh, building from the foundation that Palm itself had laid out.
0: Yeah, really, really cool. We could probably go on forever yeah, because I had, weird. I had so many PDAs, pocket PCs later, and ugh. all right. But um, man, the early two thousands were really interesting because yeah, you know, we didn't really have surround sound at that time. Like the PlayStation Two, for example, had an optical port that you can. Theoretically, spit out Dolby Digital soundtracks, but really you only had surround sound coming from DVDs. Uh, games, if you could play sound through it, but it would only be stereo, for the most part, you were just uh, using the multi AV out on your PlayStation 2 or Xbox um, One, not O N E, but the, the original base Xbox or GameCube, and spitting out stereo left and right. And sound was fine. It was stereo. It was straightforward analog sound that eventually was uh, you know, propagated as electricity through to those speakers in your TV or in another sound system. I've just been thinking about this a lot because it feels like that was a really interesting time for games because we had to deal with latency. And for me as a game player, that really came up first when we shifted from CRTs to LCD flat panel displays, mm. and suddenly when you pushed a button, it didn't quite jump, shoot, uh, execute at the same frame as when you pushed that button. It, it really, really sucked, um, and it and it made sense. You know, CRTs are just running as fast as that cathode ray gun. Inside of there was just spitting out line after line without fail. And suddenly you came to this world where your LCD display actually had to wait for that analog signal to render a frame. And then it would have to parse that frame and deliver that frame onto the display. And that meant latency of how much? A couple of frames. A couple Uh of frames is... A pretty long time.
1: That's pretty drastic. Yeah. 50,
0: 60, 80, 100 milliseconds. Some of those really bad displays. 100 milliseconds is horrible. If you've ever played uh, one of your old school games, 80s, 90s, platformers, action shooters, 100 milliseconds is an insanely long time. Uh, But eventually it got better. It never got down to zero milliseconds, uh, but it got acceptable where we got used to the fact that um, it's going to take 20, 30, 40 milliseconds instead for a frame to render. And maybe your button press wasn't absolutely instant, but it was close enough. And people got used to that, and games actually stopped being your hardcore, masochistic action platformers like, like honestly, we were used to back in the 80s. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you've played that many of, of those games back when you were younger, but I certainly enjoyed it uh, back in the day.
1: I, I tended to play more of those in the arcade environment, so like the original console for Mortal Kombat um, and its many successors and you know the, the outrun school of games. Yeah. Uh, less so – when I was gaming at home, it was more like RPGs and turn-based games and stuff like that. So, I yeah. may not have sub. Now, does this tie into why your new sound system is suboptimal for gaming? Is there a, is there a latency connection here?
0: There is. Um, basically, I got the sound system and it sounds fantastic. If I am playing movies, it's great. There's some really great immersive demos. It actually sounds good. You've got a Dolby Digital multi channel stream properly coming through via an app on your TV, and it spits out the signal to these wireless speakers. It's doing some magic on them in order to create the simulated uh, discrete channel surround sound. Unfortunately, that magic, that magic is really, really slow. <laughs> um, oh. And it's not horribly slow, but it's slow enough that you actually notice it. Um, the first game that I tried out was Halo Infinite. And I noticed that when I'm playing this game... I'm shooting that machine gun. Okay, I'm going to shoot a single round from this machine gun. On the TV, I see the the little muzzle flash, and it's not actually making a sound until, huh. whoa, 500 milliseconds later. Okay. That is that, v- very slow. All right. Well, that seems like a mistake. That seems like a user error. I need to figure out the setup. All right, um, I was a little surprised because I figured, okay, it's a, a Sony system, it's a Sony TV. I know that there's various newfangled handshaking functionality in order to say, yes, we want low latency everywhere. But instead, I ended up digging into the menus. I started enabling and disabling the things that I needed to do, making sure that I had eARC, the new standard for sound system TV communication, uh, I had that enabled. Um, I made sure that other things were disabled, like this AV sync, which actually slowed down everything in order to try to match and, and whatnot, and I was able to get it down to an acceptable level. However, uh, an acceptable level was still slower than I was hoping for. It was around the level of, say, 50 to 100 milliseconds. Uh, which was really frustrating. At the very least, okay, the sound of a gun firing is still much closer to the visual of it, much, much closer, but still not exact. I did a little bit more research, and I saw that this isn't just me. There are actually some interesting sites out there that do some rigorous testing on soundbars and sound systems, and they can actually measure the latency that is incurred When you're using different inputs, driving it with different sources, uh, uncompressed audio, Dolby digital streams, whatever. And uh, they all say that this sound system is quite good. Uh, There's one website that says, yes, this thing is a solidly decent system for gaming. We give it a 7.7 out of 10 um, as a result of us measuring the latency at around 70 to 80 milliseconds. And I thought, oh, wow, this is what's considered good these days?
1: So they, they had the same similar results, but they just were not that critical about it.
0: Right. Were they uh,
1: specifically thinking of gaming reactivity or were they just thinking like watching movies or TV?
0: Uh, they did actually specifically mention games. Uh, And I get it. I think there are a lot of modern games where 70 to 80 milliseconds is fine. But this is actually still really frustrating to me. I've got a music system. I've got my computer all set up. I've got a fancy interface. I expect my keyboard to play a piano note almost as soon as I hit it. And it is acceptable. And acceptable for me is 10 milliseconds and under.
1: (laughs) Right, so I can I can I, deal with twenty sometimes, but after that it starts feeling very loosey goosey.
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm really aware of this. It's it's definitely not twenty milliseconds. It's definitely something like two to three, like four or five frames maybe. Uh, I keep on saying frames, and it's frustrating because. Frames can be so different nowadays. Like if you're thinking about simpty frames, you're typically thinking 30 frames per second unless it's right. 24. But modern games are all about 60 frames per second because that's modern display refresh rate. But whatever. Milliseconds? These websites are saying, hey, 70 milliseconds is not bad. And I thought, oh, is this the new standard? 70 milliseconds is not bad? I see a couple of other things that they've reviewed over the over the years and they say yeah this one's great Uh, you know 50 milliseconds 40 milliseconds fantastic um and then there are other ones that are actually even worse which i shudder to think about actually using in a game scenario 100 plus milliseconds that's really scary and that's what reminded me about lcd displays back in the early 2000s like the idea of waiting for a jump To actually register visually 100 milliseconds is horrible and now i'm doing something close to that with sound on this system which is literally sony's top of the line system that they market as a great system to pair with your gaming tv for gaming scenarios it just makes me wonder is this well it makes me wonder a couple things first is this something that i'm just going to have to accept as a user? And second, is this something that I should actually take into consideration while I'm thinking about designing sound for games? Because, uh, you know, game designers have definitely done that. <laughs> they, they figured out that uh, if you can't display something until at least 30, 40 milliseconds later, uh, we probably can't design the twitchiest games anymore. Um, you can't make things that actually require frame-exact timing a- anymore the way that they did back in the CRT era. So that's that's kind of the, the thoughts that I have there. Um, did you have any thoughts on that?
1: With respect to the review, uh, I think some reviews tend to be written from the perspective of technology enthusiasts and not people who need results. So. If you have a reviewer who's covering a relatively new frontier of technology, they may be making relativistic evaluations. They may say, the Sony's latency is so much better than all the other brands without ever asking, is it suitable for certain fast real-time applications like gaming? So uh, I think there's uh, maybe a danger in reviews where the reviewers are just thinking of A versus B versus C and not a versus the thing you actually need in real life. And, and I'm getting the sense that given their standards, uh, they, they fell into the prior category. As always, uh, the Internet has no shortage of people in your position who are looking for something to complain about. So I wonder if you take to Reddit and look for other owners of the same system and see what their perspective is, you know, whether they were able to have acceptable gaming experiences uh, given the latency.
0: I'm in a pretty unique situation because I care so much about my old school games. I love retro games, and I love being able to play them at full fidelity and with a similar feel as what I had back in the 90s. Um, <clears throat> like, I have this video processor right now. It's uh, the RetroTink, and it's a remarkable video processor because it can take the analog signals that were coming out of your 90s and 2000s era systems and process that with under one frame of latency. Wow! So, all right, I've got this Sony TV that purports to have about 10 milliseconds of visual lag. And then I've got this RetroTINK that will actually process the video with minimal lag on top of that. Uh, One frame there is 16 milliseconds. So, okay, let's say I've got 25 to 30 milliseconds of visual lag. That's pretty fantastic. That is enough. I I will feel good about playing a system there, Um, playing my old Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation games on this, playing arcade boards on this that were intended for a CRT display on the other end, and it will feel good in terms of the speed. But what about audio? Uh, what about audio cues? What about just the, the audio feedback for when you're, you know, shooting a gun or your your character is making a sound, and that sound is actually a cue for you to actually do something else? And it's yeah, it's not bad on modern games though, because modern games don't really have those types of design issues, because they know what people are playing these days it's not that twitchy um or if it is twitchy it actually has like these really broad windows with which uh with these really broad windows that you can execute within like um playing Hades and being able to just escape uh various attacks it's very forgiving in allowing you to to feel cool as you execute these things that are actually very easy to execute which is very different from a '90s quarter muncher and many of the console games that also came from that same school of design.
1: It's it, it, the impact of the technology on, as it percolates back up the design level, is of course very interesting and I would say multifaceted, because designers have to take into account what is the typical experience for the audience. Um, Rather than what are a few people who have got high-end sound systems going to 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 experience. So it would be interesting to see uh, if this turns out to be a, a, if this is a typical trend. You know this level of latency. I'd be curious in seeing how long that has been an assumption uh, for on the side of developers and whether it's explicitly acknowledged or if it's just an intuitive thing that when people are making games they're they're not creating these olympic style you know competitions um mm-hmm. not like the you know the, the moba deathmatch paradigm where every neuron flash makes a difference between uh, life and death but right i think we'd need a developer's perspective to really answer that
0: yeah i mean these days i actually am still doing some work on some fighting games and fighting games are they are very old school like Obviously, we've been making fighting games for three decades now, but they definitely draw a very straightforward lineage from Street Fighter II back in the early 90s all the way up to now. And there are some you know, rules and ideas and concepts that have stayed very stable. You know, talking to some of the game designers uh, about, say, a character and their animation, and they're not a sound designer. But they will say, for example, you cannot have the sound of a whoosh happen significantly before or after the smear animation frame that signals the start of the attack. Okay, that's cool. I mean, that seems to make sense. You know, you're going from idle and then there's going to be the smear of the wind up for an attack before it hits. So, okay, it makes sense that that needs to be properly motivated. Huh. But in a fighting game especially these hardcore fighting games that are extremely quick that smear frame might only be on screen for a couple of frames 3 frames 4 frames 5 frames uh let's see i mean like 5 times 15 is we yeah, have 15 yeah 75 milliseconds right uh you know 80 milliseconds and uh Wow, that's convenient. 80 milliseconds is actually the time of the audio latency that I'm experiencing with this wireless system, which is considered a generally good system uh, when it comes to wireless latency. Um, So how should I actually think about uh, connecting this particular whoosh sound with this particular animation? Should I trigger it? earlier in the animation should i assume that more and more people are actually using wireless sound systems these days if they're going to be higher end um should i hope that maybe in some future update that we actually think about av sync again uh, remember back in the day with guitar hero because the guitar hero came out on the playstation 2 in an era of this issue with video lag because of video processing and it had you go through this whole thing of hit the bar on your guitar in time with the the beats as you see the, the white light flash across the screen. And it's like, okay, let's, let's sync up. Let's sync up. Maybe we need to do that again in the future because I personally don't see this wireless sound system trend going away anytime soon. They seem to be the default now. For when you're dealing with upgrades for, for TVs, if you want better sound, the, the thing that you get is something that has some wireless component to it, uh, a wireless subwoofer, even if the bar is itself not wireless, uh, wireless surround sound speakers.
1: I think the, um, the lesson of music technology since the turn of the millennium is convenience will usually win out over quality. Uh, at least for big jumps of convenience, so I, I'm inclined to agree that um, in this case that the aesthetics and convenience of not having to plug things into other things will be a bigger consideration than the um, details of fidelity and uh, and responsiveness.
0: Yeah. So now I'm actually thinking I should just assume that should I should I go ahead and put a little bit of a padding of about 50 milliseconds in there, uh, especially for games where there's going to be some sort of surround sound component. And surround sound encoding actually still incurs uh, an amount of time there as well. Like, I remember back in the day, there was this whole thing of, if you want your Xbox to transcode your audio, you know, let's say from... Dolby Digital to DTS because you were one of those unlucky people to have a sound system that could only accept DTS, then you're going to incur, uh, like, a couple dozen uh, milliseconds of latency penalty there. Uh, Maybe maybe we should just sort of assume that sounds are actually not going to be exactly where you want them to be anymore. You're always going to have some delay. It's not going to be zero anymore.
1: Could there be some one-time calibration at the start of a game, uh, analogous to how most games prompt you to adjust brightness until, you know, they'll have some sort of on-screen test, like when the color of his eyes match the color of the blood spurting into his eyes, and, you know, keep keep clicking on the increase brightness button. Could there be something analogous for audio... Um, where the player gives feedback about the kind of latency they're perceiving, and then the game automatically, well, not automatically adjusts, but allows itself to be calibrated.
0: That might be the way forward. I mean, those HDR and contrast calibration things that we see these days, those are pretty ubiquitous now. It's so funny. Um, When I got a PlayStation 5, I was really surprised that I was experiencing that not just for the initial setup of the console, but also at the beginning of every single game that I was putting in. I was like, what, really? Uh, Yeah, maybe that would be a new normal. And in addition to that, with every game, in addition to that uh, visual calibration, there is perhaps an aural calibration as well.
1: And could that be done per console, you know, per platform rather than per game? Could games share the same information? rather than have to prompt the user to go through a CAPTCHA-esque configuration each time.
0: Hmm. That would be nice. But that's also what I was so surprised about. I got my PlayStation 5, and as part of the whole process, um, and you can go through this process again if you change the the video output or if you change your TV, there will be some handshaking that says, oh yeah, it's a new display, you should calibrate your system again. Um, I, I honestly am really surprised that I have to do it on every single game that I play. Uh, obviously, this isn't on retro games or uh, backwards compatible uh, PlayStation 4 games and whatnot, but um, all these modern PS5 games, they they all have it. I would like for it to be something that is universal, that would be system settings that you could just... The game would just be able to read and know exactly how to execute at that point. I think that would be really, really nice.
1: An interesting question that also bears on this topic is, is latency typically consistent or does it vary? And should we be thinking about average latency or median latency rather than maximum latency?
0: I really can't tell right now. Um, I want to say that it doesn't vary. At least from the research that I've done, I haven't seen any systems that actually vary. Although I have seen issues regarding wireless connections themselves, where they would just drop out and fail, and then you would have to re, uh, reconnect, and then you just have to deal with not having sound for about five to ten seconds or so. Right. So I don't think it varies that much, if at all man, that that actually scares the crap out of me. Um, I mean, varying between 20 and 30 milliseconds is one thing. Varying between 20 and 100 milliseconds, oh man.
1: Right, like intuitively we know that we can adjust to something that's a consistent offset to some extent. You know, the the human mind can adjust, and without even fully being aware of what's going on, we can calibrate our own responses so that the, the latency feels normal, but that presumes that it's consistent. And if it's jumping back and forth, we may have another problem.
0: Yeah. I do know that some devices actually have different ways of connecting that are prioritizing different aspects of sound, uh, fidelity versus performance. And presumably latency might be part of that equation. And if these devices are actually prone to disconnecting, uh, how they reconnect might actually be a, a significant variable at that time.
1: Right. It's. Uh, I feel like this is a problem that's going to be solved on some level as things go increasingly wireless, and um, maybe transmission through the air becomes the limiting factor that you know the, the bottleneck, despite ever more powerful hardware. You know, I'm thinking a little bit how Apple's uh, much celebrated but infrequently purchased. Uh, HomePods, once set up in a room, did a little bit of a scan of the room and kind of calculated its acoustic attributes and made some kind of internal EQ adjustments. And, um, you know, that's that's frequency spectrum, but I wonder if there could be some uh, adjustment um, that's done automatically on the system level and um, individual games might define acceptable you know they might assert some kind of error condition you know if the latency ever gets worse than this and we are in a uh a game environment where where responsiveness actually really matters we can can assert an error condition if things get too bad but uh, it might take the burden off the individual developer a little bit and um who knows maybe the system could even deal getting jumping back to the issue of variance maybe the system could even uh try to keep uh, keep a, an even keel and uh, in, a, in an environment where latency was jumping between you know, 30 and 80 milliseconds say, okay, we're just going to, you know, it's, it's most reliable to treat it like it's 80 milliseconds and we'll actually introduce a delay just for the sake of consistency, even though we could do a little better sometimes.
0: That sounds like it would work really well. Um, and I would actually be really excited to try it uh, especially in a more dense uh, radio frequency environment that I'm currently able to test in right now, um, by which I mean I would love to invite people over and see what happens. Uh, my research suggests that the biggest culprit when it comes to issues of disconnects in these wireless audio systems is always Wi-Fi. Uh, your your home router, which are becoming these huge hotspots, not just of your internet, but also of electromagnetic radiation. And uh, the more people you have there, the more, well, cell phones that are connecting to this thing and, and constantly pinging each other and trying to make things happen. I, I would love to see how well it performs in there. I imagine that these things were tested in different environments and they they should be able to work really well. But I see so many forum posts that say, hey, move your Wi-Fi router over here or uh, put your Wi-Fi router over here and make sure it's there for the initial connect and then move it around over here after you set up the Wi-Fi on your soundbar and, and stuff like that. And it's mm. not restricted to just Sony. Like everyone is having this uh, Samsung, LG, all that. Everyone says that these wireless connections are still not quite great. And if there's anything that's moving forward, it's actually wireless connections themselves. Uh, we've got Wi-Fi 5. That's the past. Now there's Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E and what have you that is purporting to to do gigabit data transfer just over wireless. and who knows what it's doing? So um, now these wireless soundbars have to fight even harder uh, against all that extra noise that's out in the air.
1: On a personal level, and touching back on the subject of convenience always winning over quality, uh, I recently got the uh, Apple AirPods, the the three, the, the sort oh. of non-pro edition, but the still respectable edition, and I didn't really anticipate how positive being uh severing the physical connection to your devices is uh so that it's really hard for me to go back to uh, a wired headphone obviously i need to do it in the studio but for anything else um the ear pods are just i just grab them because they're so convenient and um, it lets you jump between different devices um Transparently. So, like, if you've got a Zoom meeting on your computer, you can listen to there, and then you can jump over to your phone if you're listening to music. And if you're uh, a super geek and have a watch, you can then start listening to your watch and put your phone down. Uh, the convenience is all encompassing. It just, it, it it becomes one of these things that you cannot live without. So, um, I can immediately see the, the lure. And, you know, I'm aware of the fact that the, the quality drops. And, uh, then there's the latency issue that we're talking about, but I, I, wouldn't go back without a pressing necessity. So yes, the future is what's convenient as it has always been ever since everyone just ditched C D quality audio for MP3. Um and I think as more and more people have these the same category of technical problems, I think the more we're gonna start to see institutionalized solutions and, and standards that address them.
0: Yeah. Yeah I'm I'm looking forward to that. You know, before I bought into this system I thought, okay, I'm doing it. I'm getting the best thing that Sony has to offer. But it turns out, yeah, it might be the best thing, but there's still ways to go in so many ways. And uh, I guess I'll be living with this compromise for a while, and I'll be thinking about this while I'm working on some sounds in the future, especially as I'm working on things that are perhaps very short sounds that -hmm. accompany very short animations. And how is that actually going to sync? And I'll probably be having to think a little bit more about how I monitor and test those sounds in the future. Because obviously my computer, everything's all wired up. Um, there is no or close to no discrepancy between the visual and audio there. All right. Time to test out in a couple different ways. Let's see what happens if I skew it forward a little bit. Um, does it still feel all right? Does it still feel acceptable?
1: as always, the state of the art of technology it drives art in the broadest sense art being music um, games movies you know whatever the tools are will always impact what artistic creators come up with. so I think this is another a more subtle example than we typically see, but a but a meaningful one
0: yeah, there's that, and uh oh. I need to mention uh, today, uh, the day that we're recording, January 28th, is actually a pretty cool day uh, because I got to see my work in a format I've never tried before. Uh, prior to this, I've always done games, and now I can say that I have some work on TV and actually in theaters and on Netflix Specifically in this Japanese anime called The Orbital Children, I was lucky enough to be allowed to work on this show writing the theme song, and it was pretty fun. (laughs) It was pretty fun.
1: When people say theme song, they often mean instrumental piece of music that kicks off a show, but in this case, you really mean theme song in the literal sense of something with lyrics, don't you?
0: Yeah, it is a song. Actually, there is no opening uh, sequence for this show, as is typical for many TV shows and Japanese anime. Instead, it is a song that accompanies the end of every episode in this series, and I had to write a song. I, I wrote the music and produced it, but I also wrote lyrics and recorded uh, this Japanese artist to sing it, and... It was quite an experience. It was very, very different from anything that I had done previously.
1: Well, I think this would be an interesting perspective to give our listenership that is probably most oriented towards where music is concerned, instrumental music. So perhaps you can give us a little tour of the process uh, from getting the gig and how you adapted your work process to how you selected the vocalist to where the lyrics came from. the oversight that the producers gave you, et cetera, why don't you give us a grand tour of the experience for you?
0: Yeah. So I think one thing that's worth mentioning about this is that the director is a very interesting guy. His name is Iso Mitsuo. Uh So Iso-san, the director, has worked on just a few things in his career, but they were all very notable and very well received things in the Japanese animation world. And this was his actual uh, first writer director effort in more than a decade. So it's been quite a long time in the making. Well, let's see, he definitely made sure that uh, everything that was going on was motivated the right way, or at least in a clear and understandable way. So going back to the beginning, uh, it turned out that uh, this director, uh, he was aware of me and I was very lucky to actually go in and apply to this job. And he actually he actually Twitter DM'd me saying that he noticed my application and he would be really excited to work. Very cool. I mean, it was just really surprising that it was um, one of those things that so rarely works. You know, usually it's going to be networking and uh, some more close connection. Um, But this, I was literally responding to something that was a Google form. And he Twitter DM'd me and said, hey, uh, I'm not sure about this but i like your work and maybe we could work together in the future um he said he wasn't sure because there was already a music composer uh who was uh writing the background music for this show already
1: Mm.
0: uh but he said yeah i would love to work in the future i said yeah well well that's cool i'm really glad that you responded to that and yeah i'm looking forward to a future opportunity too Oh, fast forward a few days, and he let actually me, let says. Let me
1: interject for a second and actually ask: How did he know your work previously?
0: So I'm very lucky because one of the games that I worked on, Sky, uh, this mobile game which came out in 2019, actually is a pretty decent hit in Japan. So he was aware of my work on on Sky specifically. Very cool. Yeah. So after a few days from that initial Twitter exchange, he says, well, maybe there's an opportunity for you to actually work on this theme song. So I'm going to get you in touch with the producer on the music side. And that set things off. We started talking via email. It was pretty much all in Japanese, no one there was like really fantastic in English, but I was able to hire a Japanese translator and interpreter to help with communication. So we just ended up doing everything in Japanese. Um, And we set about actually trying to make this song happen. He actually sent me uh, various uh, presentation documents, as well as the script for the entire show uh it's not the longest uh, it's not the longest television series it's not something like you know sailor moon where it's like 50 episodes a year or something like that um it's just a six episode series but still that ended up being hundreds of pages uh and okay i guess i'm going to hire a translator in order to actually get the gist of this story um and I, I read through it. It's a really interesting, really surprising science fiction story that I thought, whoa, uh, this is really cool. Um, and in keeping with some of the things that he has done in the past. Oh, I should say, I was actually also very familiar with this guy's work. Um, he's only done a few things in the past, but I actually knew all of them. Uh, long hmm. story short, his big TV work was this show called Deno Coil which is a show that centers primarily around the use of augmented reality in the near future. And that came out the same year that I was graduating from the interactive media program at USC. Um, Another aside, I didn't go to grad school for music. I actually did it for interactive media. And so I was very much into virtual reality and augmented reality. So that is how I was extremely familiar with his work. And uh, this show actually continues along with several technological and philosophical concepts that he had presented there. Um, really, really cool. But uh, I spent some time reading that, and we had various discussions over email, over text to Google Chat, as well as over video chat about what is the song going to be, what is... Um, What are we actually doing? Is this the song of the characters that are in the show, um, some of which are human, but also figures prominently this AI character? Um, Or is it going to be something beyond that, something that hints at that? Uh, After various discussions and ideas about uh, certain visuals, I decided to, one, write a story that would be sort of an allegory for the experience that the characters as well as the viewers taken on during the show. And uh, it's basically a whale hunt with the idea that um, the imagery of the whale is very similar to the the feeling and experience of technology. Uh, This idea of a whale being this knowable thing, but also overwhelming and barely controllable, if at all. (laughs) Uh,
1: right. Although and, uh, maybe a little more slow-moving and predictable than technology tends to be.
0: Yes. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, maybe if you prodded a little too much, it can be even more unpredictable. But um, mm-hmm. I, I wrote this story about that, and I thought, oh man, I think this feels good, and I wanted it to connect this story with the story that was actually presented in the anime, and then I wanted to do it in the way that the director actually specifically asked because he was familiar with my work on Sky, which I actually wrote lyrics in a, a conlang. And okay, I, I guess I'm going to do some similar things here. And I was researching different languages. Um, in the end, I was looking at Southeast Asian languages, uh, going to dialects from the Philippines and Indonesia. And uh, especially looking at terms that are connected to seafaring and particular sort of uh, figures that I think would be, one, interesting, and two, able to be sung by a Japanese singer. Because Japanese, despite being particularly complex as a as a language, is actually not very complex in terms of its phonemes. There's very few Japanese phonemes compared oh, interesting. to— it. Uh, Which is very different from, uh, you know, uh, other languages, English or or the Southeast Asian languages I was looking at. So I needed to convey these things in a really clear way, especially since we knew everything was going to be remote. It's going to be really hard to actually convey things that need to be explained uh, much further. So if I can translate everything into Japanese katakana, then it would be okay. So... Writing these things out, uh, you know, figuring out what is actually the language of this, and then writing the lyrics for that, um, and doing that while still figuring out, okay, what is the song going to be? It actually took a while for uh, the actual feel of the song to actually hit. Even though it's just a single song, uh, this was a many months endeavor, or like close to half a year from start to end for the production of the song. Um
1: one thing i was going to ask is uh were there role models that inspired the orchestration or the arrangement of the song which which, which strikes me as being a, uh, a very deft and artistic combination of the the electric acoustical guitar and very ethereal electronica which um struck me as a really uh, powerful mix and and gave the song a kind of distinct signature in terms of just the, the arrangement, leaving aside the vocals for a second. was there uh, Were there existing songs or existing musical uh, underscore pieces that inspired uh, or served as points of reference for that?
0: Oh, man. Um, well, I guess right off the top, there was a particular anime soundtrack that hit me particularly hard back in the late 90s called Macross Plus. And kind of similar to this particular show, it was set in the near future and it was trying to convey this world that had a couple of different cultures sort of meshing together as a result of the technology that uh, was brought on the Macross – well – (laughs) <laughs> you might know it as as Robotech, but like, oh, man, Robotech hits the world and suddenly things happen. You know, er, you know, everything is like United Nations this instead. Um, and so Macross Plus kind of does a similar thing. And you have these things that are traditional orchestra, but you also have like these sort of French trance pop songs mm-hmm. and, and all that. Uh, there were some really interesting decisions made in that soundtrack done by Kano Yoko. And that soundtrack actually stuck with me for a long time. And when confronted with this particular task, I could not help but think about my reaction to hearing that soundtrack for the first time. I I feel like this song doesn't quite hit uh, the same way as any particular song in that soundtrack. Like, There's uh, definitely some things that I wanted that were more trancy and electronic, but also like... Maybe like more guitar oriented shoegaze type stuff, and um, it kind of went all over the place. And I and after a while, I realized no, I don't want it to be drawn from any particular anchor point in my particular musical experience. But I can't ignore Macross Plus. That that was such a, a soundtrack for me.
1: Oh, very cool. And uh, you were referring. Uh earlier, to the the process of deriving lyrics using both uh, constraints of the story that you put together if I, if I understand you correctly as well as the phonemic limitations of Japan of Japanese uh, given those two inputs what did you choose as the uh, lyrical anchor I, I, I assume what we're hearing in, in the chorus is the name of the show or maybe the name, name of a character from the show is that is that right
0: Kind of. I mean, there were certain concepts that were—let's uh, were, see. There were certain concepts that the director was really excited for me to explore. And the way that I did it, honestly, was through words that sort of sounded like Japanese words. So hmm. the title of the song, for example, Oarana— uh, throughout the the song, like the I asked the singer to do these sort of elongated double vowels, so na. you know, and it's like it's sort of such an unusual thing that you don't have in Japanese, but you do have a lot of in Southeast Asian languages, like in the Philippines and Indonesia. Um, but despite that, the word itself sounds kind of similar to a Japanese word. Owara nae, which means without end or unending or infinite. And I wanted to sort of do things with the language where I was connecting uh, Japanese or or near Japanese words with the concepts that were in the story that I wrote, uh, but not exactly matching. So, like the idea of this whale being enormous and incomprehensible. But also when being confronted by it, the Japanese word, O-R-N-I, almost comes up or sort of hints at in your mind, and it feels more than just being incredibly large in front of you. So that's kind of where I was thinking about when it came to these lyrics. Like There, there is actually a very specific kind of a poem that I wrote out, and every verse has specific things that the speaker is lingering on. And I wanted to make sure that the words felt right, but also that they could connect with some different concept that is near to a Japanese word or term or phrase that uh, could further extend the feeling at that particular time.
1: Let me flesh out my understanding with some dumb questions. Uh, are the lyrics literally in Japanese, or are they in some other language, or are they just phonetic, phonemic suggestions of Japanese?
0: They, they are phonemic suggestions.
1: Interesting. So a Japanese speaker listening to the song would not hear something that's literally comprehensible, but rather something that's lyrically more poetic than semantic. Is that right? That is right. Yes. Interesting. I don't... That's such an interesting approach. Um... And I can't think of any analog in English, uh, except maybe um, anecdotally, there's circulating around YouTube a number of years ago was a um, kind of a faux English song created by an Italian artist who was just recording a song that he thought sounded like English, but was actually gibberish. So there were, you know, snatches of different English words together, but they, they literally didn't mean anything. That was done for comedic value, whereas this sounds like it's being done with poetic intent.
0: Right. It's, um, you know, it's funny. I feel like I come across this concept a bit just from language learning. Like, I'm trying to learn Japanese right now. And you get into these things, uh, you know, not just with Japanese, but learning any language uh, called false friends. Where you have something that, oh, that sounds like an English word. It must be similar to that English word, but it's not. Um, the first thing that I can think of is jujun. And in Japanese, jujun means obedient. Hmm. Uh, but jejun means, you know, it's you know, it's it's the English word, jejun, you know, it's like, you know, simple naive. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, oh man, is there a connection there? There kind of is. And like the more that I got into that, I, I actually liked that idea of sort of leaning into those false friends, but in a way that sort of extends your feeling. I like I actually I actually have sort of a joke that I like to make for myself, which is I like to really put the plain in plaintive. And of course, (laughs) you know, plaintive doesn't mean plain at all. It means like, you know, sad or morose or, you know, like that. Uh, But it's more something that I've kind of lingered on as a lie I've created for myself about what it means to make something that is like emotional and heart-rending. And I... And I think about, oh, can I make this simpler? Can I make this actually more stark or more plain in order to execute that particular feeling? So I, I feel like this approach to the lyrics is actually an approach similar to um, you know, some other things that I've done elsewhere in music.
1: Now, given that you have lyrics that are not literally meaningful, but more poetically suggestive through their phonology how do you go about approaching a vocalist and encouraging in this case her to imbue the the lyrics or the the music with meaning given that she doesn't necessarily understand you know there's no there's no text it's it's all just suggestive uh, what kind of conversations did you
0: have with your vocalist along those lines gosh i mean well what can i say i thought she was actually really good <laughs> uh, like she she was like really uh sensitive to sort of the mix of emotions That would come out at different places. I mean, besides that, I did have a a spreadsheet that I shared, which is, here is the English poem, and here is the poem in the lyrics for the song, here Mm. is a Japanese interpretation of the poem with explanations of, of why this particular imagery is there, and what the what the underlying feeling is for the speaker here and why he's making this particular allusion. So I tried to make things pretty clear with that type of documentation, and I think that was really sufficient, and they were just able to execute based on their, their skill from that point.
1: So interesting. Uh, I would never have guessed, being someone who is ignorant of Japanese, that I wasn't listening to Japanese, which was just my default naive assumption, so I think you've done a great job in coming up with some lyrics that have the phonetic qualities of language, but also really support the emotion of the song and create... Well, it's funny that the song is about something, as as you've described it, large and uh, maybe cumbersome, uh, whereas to me the song is light and ethereal and has a kind of pulsing agility to it. Um, Mm -hmm. in a way that that is a little evocative of of minimalism Uh, you know to me it just the visual imagery is is light and um, and kind of dancing on clouds and all these things that are sort of the opposite of what you've described as the uh, um, the the meaning if uh, the backstory is probably a good term to use so it is funny how association will take us on different paths
0: well i think that I think if you have that feeling I think that's exactly what I wanted actually because it's not about the whale it's about the whale hunt and the the speaker his feelings and emotions as he goes through with this whale hunt oh man i'm being dragged on a whale hunt oh oh man uh, do i know what i'm actually doing here why am i actually along for the ride i didn't have any particular emotions here the whale is underneath the water. We're skipping across the water in a particular way. And then it comes and overwhelms. And what is my emotion at that point? So I, I think it's okay. I, I think that's actually great that you actually got that particular feeling and not just, oh, it's a, it's a big whale. <laughs> you know, that, that's not entirely the, the subject of, right. of the poem there.
1: And is there a connection between the story you wrote and the content of the show?
0: Yes. So there is in fact like some very specific whale imagery that is there in the show. It, it is a very it is not that story, but there is whale imagery. Um and in terms of the relationship between <laughs> hey dog in terms of the relationship <laughs> in terms of the relationship between uh the characters, I think that um the the feelings that exist between the characters and uh you know who is the antagonist uh, of the show are actually kind of similar um
1: so um you, you should absolutely keep your dog in the in the edit i think
0: <laughs> yeah so yeah there there's some interesting things happening that i think mirror the two stories um uh i mean i knew that i wasn't going to really be able to any do anything in a song that had that type of detail and, and twists and whatnot. But uh, the overall ride is, is really what I was hoping for, along with the shift in the relationship that exists. So in in, in this song, it's the shift that um, the speaker has when it comes to uh, what the whale actually represents to him and how much of an impact it has on his life, both from a distance as well as, Confronted in person when you know just sort of recontextualizing everything, like having a different perspective on what the whale actually thinks about the relationship that it has with all these other creatures, uh, all these people that <laughs> that have these preconceived notions of them how really interesting
1: I thought just on a, an emotional level, the song is uh, scintillating and captivating and very well written for the vocalist uh, in terms of exploiting the different regions of her register. Uh, there's a coda at the very end that kind of jumps up into the, the high uh, fey stratosphere of her, of her upper register, and I assume her head voice. Uh, it's very well tailored, I think, and um, just really a, a joy to listen to.
0: Wow. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Man, uh I mean it was a wild ride. I'm I'm really glad that I can actually talk about this now because this was something that was on the burner for fully half of last year. Um and now it's it's really <laughs> it really is quite a wonder to see this thing on Netflix and on YouTube and you, know, you can get it digitally on, on Apple and, and whatnot. I really wish that I was able to be in Japan to actually experience it on a theatrical sound system. <laughs>
1: mm. Well, That I guess would be you're great. But tying together our topics, hopefully your fancy new Sony home system, latency and all, uh, provided you with a good listening experience.
0: It's pretty good. Honestly, it is pretty good for that. If I'm not worrying about button presses, uh, yeah, that is, in fact, a solid, solid sound system.
1: For our listeners who want to hear the song both out of context and then in context with the show, where can they go?
0: So the name of the song is O-A-R-A-N-A, spelled O-A-R-A-N-A. If you search for it on YouTube or Apple or Amazon, you should be able to come up with that digital single. Um, And for now, I'm actually still promoting it a little bit because this is literally the the opening salvo, I guess. It it just released on Netflix today. And the show's name? The name of the show is The Orbital Children Uh, right now. And right now, you can check it out on Netflix. I mean, it just came out, so it presumably will be up there for a while. It's six episodes, so if you want to binge it, I suppose you could very easily in a day or a weekend. Um, and uh, I think it's a pretty darn good story. I think you, you'll really enjoy it.
1: Well, very cool. And uh, I, I perhaps we'll be able to discuss it in a, uh, a future installment of, uh, of Conspicuous Consumption. As we conspicuously consume your output and the the show that you've written for.
0: <laughs> Conspicuous consumption. Should we actually go to that? Like have you been having fun with anything lately?
1: Uh I've I've been a creature of habit the last uh week or so because uh certainly this week I've I've now been a little under the weather. So a lot of what I've consumed has been creature comforts, uh the familiar. Um my my favorite show at the moment is still the Book of Boba Fett. Um whose score is perhaps a little less striking than that of The Mandalorian, but uh, it still manages to um, create a interesting soundscape musically that I think takes some inspiration from the canonical Star Wars scores while not really sounding like them. And uh, I think it strikes maybe a, even a better balance between these elements than uh, Mandalorian did. I'm embarrassed mm. to admit, I don't know if it's the same composer. It may not have been, but if you think of these two shows as related um they both strike out new territory and i think this one does it at a little more of a an even keel uh how about yourself
0: ooh well i did get that new sound system so i've been mostly testing it out with games um the easiest thing to do is xbox game pass so going through and as i've been slowly going through halo infinite again and uh and that's actually a really darn good game uh i've just Uh, If you're familiar with the game I'm actually going through and uh, destroying those anti-aircraft guns so I can go back to exploring the map and and whatnot, Uh, it's pretty darn good. Uh, Besides that, uh, testing out my retro games because I love retro stuff, and especially I love being able to exercise the ability to capture that stuff in super high fidelity. So this RetroTINK that I've mentioned before, the RetroTINK 5X, besides being a very low latency video converter, it upscales your content from those 90s uh, standard definition resolutions all the way up to 1440p. And I've been having fun actually capturing all that in 1440p glory. Things like, you know, Street Fighter Alpha 3 on Sega Saturn or Garoden, which is an obscure fighting game, or the PlayStation 2. Making that stuff look good in video captures is actually really cool, especially since I generally enjoy um, seeing the praises of those obscure games to other people who say they like fighting games. Hey, hey, here's a new one. You should check this out. Totally underrated, totally underappreciated. You know, Being able to do that in higher fidelity is always cool.
1: It does allow you to make your case a little more strongly, too.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I I guess that's it. We've been going at it for a little more than our typically allotted hour. So I guess we should call it an episode at this point. Um, Wrap it up. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, This was episode 217 of the Game Audio Hour. You're probably listening to us right now, so we don't have to say that you can check us out on various purveyors of podcasts because you already know where those are. Uh, but if you didn't already know, uh, we are on Twitter and we will let you know when we are uploading a new episode for your enjoyment. So please check us out at Game Audio Hour on Twitter.
1: And you can always go to gameaudiohour.com to see the uh, link tree, which will take us to all. Take you to all of our various uh, presences online.
0: Absolutely. So until the next episode, bye.
1: Take care.